Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such a Good Feeling. My name is Steve Anderson, and today's guest is one of my favorite singer songwriters and someone who I often describe as magical due to her incredible ability to connect directly to people's hearts through her songs and performances. So I'm so happy to say, welcome, Judy Zook. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Very happy to be here. I mean, we haven't seen each other for a while, um, but we've obviously known each other for a long time and we've worked together. And I think we find you on the eve of releasing a live album and preparing for a tour with your compadres on Woman to Woman. Woman to Woman to Woman to Woman now. Yes, women. Women to, like many women now. You keep adding. It's, I remember the hilarious thing is I do remember the time before when this was being mooted and I think I joked with you when you were, I was like, oh, it's, you finally started a girl band. Yeah. <laughs> we do call, well, Julia calls us a gal band. Yeah. Um, but it I is. call them my song sisters. But yeah, it, it is what it is. And it, it sort of changes all the time. Even when it was just the three of us, it changed all the time. The sort of balance, the dynamics and you know, what went on. And it's brilliant. But now we've also got rumour. So that's going to be all new again. It's so exciting. And I mean, it's obviously it's you and Julia Fordham and Beverly Kramer and Rumour. And, you know, you all sing your songs and each other's songs and new songs and, mm. and different songs. But there is such a magic. Obviously, I haven't heard the, the version with Rumi yet, but certainly when I've heard the one from the three of you, the real magic is when you're harmonising together, I feel. Yeah. And being on stage is something where well, you've seen us live. But yes. You know me. I'm a very emotional person and I sort of, I try and be a little bit guarded in day-to-day -day life. But on stage, I have to be completely unguarded. I have to just allow every feeling that's there to go through me. Mm. And when I'm on stage with Julia and Beverly, um, it's like I fall in love with them on stage. It's like this huge loving on stage mm. because I'm open to it and we're all supporting each other on stage and we're all seeing the different things that we do and seeing each other sort of on stage supporting each other and willing yeah. each one of us to do the absolute best that we can and hearing songs differently every night. You know, there are songs that I knew of Beverly's and Julia's that I never really knew what the words were or I just thought I liked them. Mm. <clears throat> but of course, when you watch someone singing them on stage you actually listen and can feel what the songs are really about so things change you know it's it's been an, and also the fact that we all had songs that were quite sort of uh well definitely romantic and of a certain time in people's lives when I actually was on stage and I could feel the audience it's like they weren't just listening to us they were back where they were when they first heard me or you know save me till dawn or promise me or I don't know happy ever after or girlfriend or whatever of Julia's you can feel that we're actually sort of playing people's lives and moments and it was I think as emotional for us on stage and surprising um of how the audience was so emotional as well yeah. difficult to explain but it was quite a fantastic thing I still love doing my own stuff on my own as well but mm. it was a very new and fantastic feeling to be on stage with two other women who had had similar experiences and because most of my career was always around lovely men <laughs> you know that that was who I had to relate to but it was interesting being with two women who had similar things and we could talk and relate and yeah, 
It's a, it's an amazing thing. It has its ups and downs, but overall, they're ups. And the live album is um, that's coming out is is the concert one of the concerts you yeah. did with the strings as well, which is beautiful. Yeah, I don't like live albums, and I never listen to myself. But of course, we all had to mm. listen to this as it sort of as the tracks appeared. You know, we were getting them sent every kind of week from Grant, who was actually getting them off the live tapes and mixing them up. And I was really happily surprised at how it sounds mm. it's not perfect but it captures an awful lot of the moment and it sounds a hell of a lot better than I ever mm. expected it to and it I don't know if you've seen it and I'm not trying to sell it to you but <laughs> it's we've done um, a vinyl box set mm. and it's like something out of the 70s it's like when you used to buy albums and the cover was almost as important as the music you know it's yes. like stories in there photographs in there like booklets and mm lyrics and it's just a lovely thing I mean I don't know if I'll ever play it but I've got one and I will have it in pride of place in my in my house and that's not nothing personal I just to anyone I just don't usually listen to live albums but I have listened to it and I think it's fantastic but I love the look of it as well yeah no it is really good when going back to you know talking about records you play in your house I mean what was the musical landscape of the house that you grew up in um, before you started finding your own records? Obviously coming from a reasonably, you know, with your mum and dad both having kind of showbiz connections. I mean, what's what yeah. kind of stuff is played when you, what's, what are you listening to when you're a kid? Frank Sinatra. My dad's favourite was Frank Sinatra. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, can't think of names, also awful. Um, the kind of people that were around Frank Sinatra and I can't think. So sort of Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Fitzgerald, that's what yeah. I was trying to think of. Ella Fitzgerald. Um, my dad also obviously was doing the Jesus Christ Superstar thing and he yeah. had that wonderful Hawaiian woman um, who we heard a lot of. She sang in the Jesus Christ Superstar on the album, the original. Right. I can't remember her name. But Frank Sinatra was definitely my dad's absolute favourite. My mum uh, was into Leonard Cohen um, and, oh, that Newcastle band, you, I hadn't thought about all these. Uh, I want to say Lindisfarne. No, Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne. I was about to say Lindisfarne. My mum loved Lindisfarne. She also loved the Spanish singer whose son is also famous. Um, Julio. Julio Iglesias. There you go. That was my mum loved hers, yeah. Um, my dad did love a lot of music, but uh, who else? I can't think who else right now. But the biggest person for me was... Uh, Frank Sinatra. Definitely. So it's all quite. Oh, and and there was another woman that you like as well that he used to listen to a lot. Oh, can't remember. I'll remember it later. Remember it. Yeah. But but so quite traditional, basically, apart from the Leonard Cohen. So it's quite a traditional sort of yeah. classic songwriting thing. So when you get to that lovely moment in your sort of teenage years where you start rebelling and finding your own music and what you want to listen to, where did you go? Well, the first record I ever bought was Hey Joe by Hendrix so uh, I feel I'm sorry I, I never I find that imp I always find it impossible when someone comes up <laughs> with a, a cool first record that I know, is well, the very... second one okay but the second one was probably Judy in Disguise with Diamonds which right, was not okay, cool right, I'll, let, I'll let you get away with <laughs> um, that then I think I was about 10 um, when okay. I, that happened but um, but yeah I, I was very lucky actually in my early music years because um I got to hear lots of things at home anyway, coming through, but also I heard 
Jimi Hendrix and that kind of, and Bob Dylan. I bought a very peculiar song by Bob Dylan, which I, it's like John 1941 or some, something like that. I can't remember what it was called, but, um, and I love Tamla Motown very, mm. I instantly loved that. I was at boarding school and um, I heard, heard it through a grapevine. I used to have my little radio under my pillow because we weren't allowed to have them in the dormitories. So I used to hide mine and heard it through a grapevine came on. And that sort of took me on a whole journey of, you know, all the Tamla things and um, Tammy Terrell and all that, and, and Sam and Dave, all those things when I was probably 12-ish. It's difficult to remember all the timings, but, and then I then I got into Free and Paul Rogers because I loved his voice um, and John Martin. Then I started playing guitar when I was about 14 or 15. Then I got into John Martin and um, I did lots of folk clubs in London when I was like 15, 16. I also used to go to this pub in Kingston that anyone from that area of, of our time will remember because it was very notorious called The Three Fishes. And it was a big, big uh, pub. And High Watt, whoever owned High Watt speakers and were friends with the DJ. So they had a DJ there with this massive, massive uh, system that was, you know, huge and so loud. And the DJ, who should have been very famous, but he never was, but he had lots of friends in America and they used to send all the new American stuff like Steely Dan and way, be way before we ever knew anyone like that, Jackson Brown, Steely Dan, um, Joni Mitchell, right in the very beginning. And um, when I was 16, I moved in this flat in New Malden and he used to come over and listen to all these records that he got sent and check out which ones he was going to play um, and which ones he didn't want to. So I got to hear the whole, is it gamut? Is that the word? Mm, the whole yes. gamut of music that was coming out of America before half of America knew what it was, you know, so I was so lucky to get into all that kind of, and I loved music. I loved making tapes up for my friends and, you know, with the, all these bands that no one had heard of uh, in this country with fantastic music. That's my cat. Did you hear That's that? That's great. Yeah, there will be, this is, this is a, this is a pet episode for everyone. We've got the cat. Really? The dog is definitely going to turn up at some point. Yeah. Um, I don't know where she's gone. Oh no, she's here. Did you teach yourself guitar? Yes, I did. Not, and I wasn't, I never got good enough. And then I met Mike Paxman when I was about 17 and um, he could play guitar. And I just thought, well, you know, I can't, I was told I was quite good for a girl, which oh. was definitely not, not <laughs> something I ever, you know, wanted to hear. I wanted to play like John Martin. I wanted to be mm. doing the finger picking and I did some of it. And I, I learned Jackson Brown's um, song for Adam. Mm. I learned it by ear and then I saw him on TV and I played it right I'd learned it right I thought he'd have all sorts of fingers and yeah, yeah. you know how but he actually just played it basically the way that I learned it from hearing it so I could do a bit of that and I did a bit of tuning you know different tuning things which were great and made it sound like you could play much better than you yeah. actually could um, but I just wasn't good enough and I got so nervous that when I was doing it in front of people Mm. I could, my fingers just wouldn't move. No. Know? And had you started when you picking up the guitar, obviously you're picking up other things, but at that was that around the time that you started to write? Yes. I, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I think I was about, I started writing a diary um, 
and I would sort of write my diary about what had happened in the day. And at the end of the diary, I'd write a little four line poem. I don't really know why, but I just did it. And then we got this English and history teacher that arrived at our school who had long hair and sort of John Lennon glasses mm. and all the girls, we all kind of fell in love with him, but I really fell in love with him. And he was listening to all sorts of music. Um, and he had a massive poster of Bob Dylan in the staff room, which I was, it was brilliant. So I then started using my uh, little poems and trying to put them to music and trying to teach myself guitar. I actually asked some of the girls who were actually learning guitar to teach me, I think it was called Romance, that, mm. that, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't teach me. So I learned it myself by ear, only the easy bit, not the difficult mm. bit. And that's where it started. And um, in actual fact, for you, the, on the, my track for you, the bit in the middle that goes, the main one is from one of my little, uh, diary things. Oh. I needed some words to sing. I'd done the backing vocals on my Akai tape recorder mm. and I just thought, oh, I think I could sing something over this. So I went through my diary and I found the Why Is It When I Wake Up Every Day and I just sang it. And that happened as fast as I could record that song. Yeah. It was wow. very. So, yeah, I mean, I've always, I'm, I am music in my life. It's always been what I go to when I'm happy, sad or anything, really. Music just doubles up however I'm feeling. Mm. And you men mentioned Mike there. I mean, Mike Paxman was, uh, you know, kind of was a, a major part in, in, in many of your things. I mean, how mm. did you how did you two meet? Well, I had my mum had signed me to a, a funny agency, um, which was a terrible thing to have done. She didn't mean to do it. She meant well, but I was stuck in this situation with, um, well, it sounds, that doesn't sound nice, but with a bunch of kind of people who were variously connected to the music industry. Mm. Um, one of whom um, knew Mike because Mike had played drums for him because Mike was originally a drummer, or Pax, as I call him, yes. was originally a drummer. So I was introduced to Pax um, by him, and we just discovered that we loved the same sort of music. I was able to play him loads of things, you know, from America and all. He was into Zappa, and um, he was into very kind of interesting music, not necessarily the most sort of romantic and you know he just loved all the chords and all the stuff and I'd not, not really listened to that kind of music um but I think we I was about 16 or 17 when I when that happened um and we just wrote loads of songs together I gave up for a few years because the boyfriend I had said if you keep doing that you're going to be famous so I won't I don't want to go out with you so I gave it up for a couple of years <laughs> I know, terrible, isn't it? What we do, but um, I came back to it because it was it was me, yeah, much and more the, than he was. <laughs> yeah, and the two of you did the, didn't the two of you put a record out together at one point? We did. We were called Zook and Paxo because I didn't want to be a solo artist, and you know, and I felt like we did everything together. Um, but when we got signed, well, Tony Visconti signed us both as mm. Zook and Paxo. Um, unfortunately, uh, when our first single, the day it came out, um, Tony's company, Good Earth, sort of went down because of 
some bad things had gone on behind the scenes. It was nothing to do with us. So yeah. that company was gone. And, and so it took us a few years to get sorted and go with Rocket. And so, and, and, did again. It, and to, didn't Tony produce that? Tony well. did produce it. I yes. mean, that's not bad going for the first no. song that you record is no. produced by Tony Visconti. That's right. I know. And and <laughs> you know, he he was great and it was absolutely nothing to do with him. He was excited in the bad stuff, the fact that his company didn't sort of survive. Um he he was brilliant. He was fun. And I I've still got that version somewhere on a record. Yes, because you obviously re-recorded it yourself for the welcome to the yeah. cruise yeah. yeah so how so once that had happened and you moved on did you just continue writing together and finding a, a body of work that would then be taken to record companies um and was what was rocket some was someone you approached or did they approach you well actually that's where paul muggleton who obviously yes. became my husband yes um he was in a band called omaha sheriff and mm. that was tony's sort of favorite band on the label Tony Visconti's I mean in Tony Visconti's book he calls Paul one of the most talented people that he ever worked with yep. which is quite something when yes. you think who Tony worked with um but I had met Paul and Omaha Sheriff when I was signed to Good Earth with uh, Tony and Paul had met somebody at Rocket I'm not quite sure who I can't quite remember but he told Rocket about me um and then I got an interview and I went in and um, played them what I had, which I can't remember what that was, but I did have Stay With Me Till Dawn and For You right. already. Um, I had, in fact, I had most of the album really. Okay. And yeah. what's, uh, it's just interesting. I mean, you've explained a bit about For You, because obviously For You is, is, it's two songs in one, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, kind of, yeah. I mean, but was it, I mean, was it, well, it is it sort of, it, it's kind of that thing where the the backing vocals are doing a kind of, the it is all obviously completely a cappella, but I've always been curious about how that was created. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> we wrote Stay With Me Till Dawn, Pax and I, in my mum's dining room, and then Pax went home, and I was still very vibey about Stay With Me Till Dawn. I kind of, I don't know why, but I think we both felt that it was something special. Mm. I had a new Akai tape recorder, which at that time, you know, was quite modern thing and, and it could record itself on top of itself. Mm. So I was awake, very awake. And I sat up all night recording the, here they come again, here they come again thing. Without thinking what I was singing, I was just trying to do something that I could then put harmonies on. And then when I heard those ones and I listened to it, I thought oh, I could do another one going, here I am looking for love and affection. And then I kind of listened to them all together. They weren't most weren't supposed to be a song. Mm. It was supposed to be just me messing about and learning how to record myself on top of myself. And when I played the two parts back with the harmonies on, I just suddenly thought, well, I could probably write something on this mm. and so I went to my diary and I found that whole lyric um and just sang it didn't even really think about it and I sat up I had to sat, sit up all night before I could play it to anybody because I really didn't know whether it was something or 
just a bunch of harmonies. I really didn't know. I think I woke my mum up at seven o'clock and played it to her and she didn't really know whether what it was either. Mm. Um, and it was only sort of really later on that I played it to Pax and he thought it was brilliant and he put the middle eight in and sort of just tidied it up a bit for me and that was that really. So that is the ver- that's the version. You didn't have to then go in and re-record it. Well, we did go and re-record it, but the, the, I actually still love the original, original version. Um, but no, we did go in and do it properly, but yeah. we didn't have a click track or anything. Like, no. you know, and I can still, when I hear the one that's on the record, it's, uh, it does go out of time quite a bit and stuff, but it, you know, it had its moments. It was, it was a magic thing. And it's still, I think one of my most, uh, favorite things that I've ever done. And also I, I often, I often try again to do that now mm. because I think if I just sit back and just let myself go it'll Mm. happen Mm. and I've got quite a few little bits like that but I've never been able to actually go to the end of the song and and make a whole song again yeah um wow and was the uh what was the diff was there a huge difference between your original demo of Saving Me Till Dawn and the finished product as in well yes for instance did (laughs) did you know Elton always used to say this thing with Paul Buckmaster that he would just leave a gap for him was yeah. that the similar thing where you just left a gap and said, Paul will fill it up? Well, we didn't, I had never met Paul at that point and I didn't know that we were going to be lucky enough to have him on it. Yeah. But the original Stay With Me Till Dawn was on piano. Hmm. Um, oh. And I liked it on piano. I wanted to do the original. I wanted to do it like a, a just a beautiful piano track. Wow. But John Punter, who produced the album, had absolutely got a plan and it, included the sort of electronic keyboard thing Mm. and the big drums. Um, And I was very uh, hesitant to kind of go along with that until I heard the strings that, and I didn't know who Paul Buckmaster really was very Mm. much. And I mean, I'd heard him with Elton stuff and I thought he was brilliant, but I know and can say that he said to me that the strings in Stay With Me Till Dawn were one of the favourite things he'd ever done in his whole life. Mm. And it felt like that to me. It still feels like that. And now I think John Punter was an absolute genius to take Stay With Me Till Dawn the way he did. And I love it now. And I'm lucky to have had, you know, the one song I've had as a big hit, I still love. And I'm still, you know, I listen to the strings and I still feel things and hear things every time. Really. It's it, and and it's one of those things that it sort of a, has a timeless quality about it. It doesn't really date, and I think, yeah, I can't even imagine it now without those roads and feels. No. Weird, you know, although you know, it would still obviously stand up because it's regardless of the production's yeah. amazing, but it's still a, a beautiful song. But thank you. It was the mood. I think I suppose it was the mood, and I and I think, I mean, I'm obviously a huge fan of, of Buckmaster as well, and they, and and I think giving him that moment, you know, that little 16-bar moment to just mm. do his thing and then going to the climax of the song is yeah. is extraordinary. Well, I mean, I'd never met him before he did that. Mm. After that, we became great friends and we lived around the corner from each other and a lot of the other things that he did for me were done overnight at his house because <laughs> mm. he wanted me there when he did them but I still think the best thing that he ever did on my stuff was particularly was that um and yeah he was amazing amazing person amazing musician 
Yeah, absolutely. And was the, from Rocket's point of view, I mean, Rocket was a huge company then. Is there, is that, is it anything that Elton got involved in at all or was it just handled by the Rocket team? Well, I, I think, I don't think Elton knew that I'd been signed for, I think I met Elton after three months of being signed okay. to Rocket. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and he did take me to America on tour. Yes. So, you know, I spent quite a lot of time with him. Um, I don't think that, I, I mean, I don't know how much Elton had to do with whether he loved my music or, or mm. not. He always said he would, but then I think he would because he just signed me to his label as far as everyone was concerned. So I don't know what he thought of my music. And then this is like, we're talking sort of late 70s. I mean, what is it like being on tour with Elton John in America in the late 70s? Well, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced and would ever experience again because we were playing to 20,000 people most nights. Um, I think I'd played to about 300, you know, before that, or maybe maybe 500 um, on my own. I didn't see an awful lot of him because we travelled by bus. Mm. We were in Dolly Parton's old bus, um, which was amazing, and Brilliant. I had a, a stateroom at the back uh, with a great big... It was just beautiful, all velvet and beautiful, um, and he was flying. So we didn't see that much of him, um, but he was always, you know, always nice when I saw him. But also just that thing of being on, the, you know, a massive tour of America in the late 70s it's just all of the stuff that goes around that and actually for someone you know from here just to it's such an eye-opener just even just yes. being being able to tour a country as big as that because each state is almost its own country it was well, it was an incredible uh tour I think it lasted like a couple of months or something and we did go everywhere some places we saw more of than others um because obviously we were driving so most of the time we'd literally arrive, go to the, cha the changing rooms, do the gig, and we'd drive overnight to the next place because it would mm. take hours and hours to get there. Mm. So uh, I was ill at one point. I got everything-itis down the throat. I had tracheitis, mm. bronchitis, everything. It was like every bit of my throat. And um, I was sent to, uh, oh... Oh, and I've forgotten where it was, but they sent me somewhere where it's very, very dry and very hot. Mm. And I had to wait there for a couple of weeks and I had to miss a few of the gigs, which was very upsetting, including the Houston one, which was where my mum was living. So that was a shame. I missed that. But um, it was an eye-opener. Elton was definitely in his wild and crazy time when, you know, he'd hire a cinema for a night to go and watch a film that had just come out or would be upset because the white lilies weren't in his dressing room or, you know, crazy things. He was in a, a wild part of his career. Hmm. Um, but he was, uh, it, it was, it was like nothing else that I would ever do again. I played at Central Park, you know, which was 450,000 people. And that was where he wore the duck yes. outfit. But before he wore the duck outfit, we sat in a backsta backstage caravan and downed a whole bottle of whiskey between us because I was so scared and he was Elton. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that was incredible and terrifying, but so terrifying that I think I, think I sort of blotted it all out a bit 
because mm. it was every, I, especially that one. Because at least when you're in a big, you know, theatre in America, you only see it's there might be twenty thousand people, but you only see the first few rows. Um, so that wasn't as terrifying as I expected. Yeah, yeah cause the cat yeah, is she's like, having a he's having a shout at the pigeon. Little, I've got a poor of, pigeon yeah. out there. I know a little bit of harmony vocals from the cat. Yeah, and also you you I mean obviously you did America of uh, Elton, and obviously you know Stay with Me Till Dawn was successful, but tremendously successful in Australia. It was. That was. I went there at the end of. Um, I had to go out there, and we were recording the, the album Sports Car at the time. Yeah, and uh, we were nearly finished it. And uh, I had to go out to Australia. I'd, I really had no idea what, what we'd done out there. And I arrived on the plane and there were like, well, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of kids screaming as I got off the plane and following along the taxi that when we were in the, the car and rushed off to a hotel. And it was amazing because I had no idea that yeah. that was happening. And we yeah. were on TV and, you know, everywhere we went, we were either number one or number three or four. You know, we were in the top... 10 and I I hosted uh, Molly Meldrum's uh, program out there. Brilliant. Um, I had to get a bit drunk to do that and Molly was <laughs> determined to get me to be controversial and kept trying to say, get me to say things about the other artists that he was playing. He was very wicked. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> I manoeuvred my way without being horrible about anybody. Much to his disappointment. I bet, yes, <laughs> I bet. We love Molly. What's... Um, uh, when it came to the uh, sports car and the, and the second album, I mean, obviously the first album was very organic and you'd just written some songs and it it got signed and then there was this, you know, tremendous success. Uh, was there a pressure to try and follow that up? There probably was, but I didn't accept it. And And to me, the first album, in my opinion at that time, had been so overproduced that I was worried uh, that, it was never, I was never going to be seen as who I really was. So Sports Car was already, most of it was, a lot of it was written already. Mm. Um, because, of course, the first album's written from when I was 14 until 21 or whenever it was mm. that I did it. So I had other songs as well for Sports Car. Um, but we underproduced Sports Car to the extreme because I think I was battling this feeling that, I've always had is that I'm considered a bit middle of the road and I felt myself that I was more rocky than that. Mm -hmm. So um, I look back now and, and realise that, well, the first album was produced and made, it was a beautiful production and Sports Car was a, was a great production too, but a much smaller one. Mm. But I think that was what I was more thinking about than the pressure of having another album that was as good as the first. I just wanted to get the second one the way I wanted it. And but influenced by the fact that I wanted it to be so much less produced at the time. Yeah. So it was the other extreme. I think we kind of found our middle ground later on, really. So by the time you came to the third album, which would be the last for Rocket on I'm the Phoenix, was that another one where you thought, okay, well, we've done that. Um, do we change everything completely or do we just keep cracking on and... Well, in actual fact, we'd had a bit of a fallout with um, with Rocket. Mm. And so I wanted to leave Rocket, but they wouldn't let me go because I was committed to the three albums. So the third album was um, a mixture of songs that I already had and Paul's Muggleton songs. Mm. Um, so we kind of did it as an album 
to release us from Rocket. But it came out quite well, I, th- I think, I hope. Yeah. And by then, Paul was producing everything that I did. Um, so I think it just naturally started going more the way we wanted it. Yeah. And then you sort of get into this period where, you know, the changes record. I mean, the next record label was Chrysalis, right? Yes. Yeah. Which is, must have been, again, probably exciting to move away it, from somewhere. It was really, that, yeah. Yeah. When you said that you were all ready to sort of leave anyway, the, the relationship had got to the point where it was natural. It must have felt like a nice fresh start. Yeah, it did. I mean, it was very frustrating with Rocket. And I have to say, I didn't want to leave because I I loved, I actually loved John Reed, And, you know, I loved the, uh, some of the people that were there. And I, I'm not very good with change, although I had to learn to be <laughs> with record labels. But, you know, I didn't want to leave Rocket, but we couldn't get any decision on anything without talking to John Reed, And right. he was always out in America, somewhere else, too busy to talk. I actually sat on the steps of Rocket one day waiting to try and catch John when he came in because I knew he was going to come in so that I could ask him nicely either to be at the end of the phone for me if he was going to insist that that was what we, you know, we had to talk to him first. No one could do anything without his okay Um, or let me go. And I spoke to him and he let me go, although it was not as lovely as I'd like it to have been. It was never, I didn't want to leave them because I didn't like them. I just, I was frustrated because couldn't get anything going. No, but but you're still, but it's still the, but you've you've changed labels, but you've still, it's still the same team. It's the same writing at the same production. Yes. Yeah. I think then by then I was writing with Bob Noble as well, who was the keyboard player in my band. Um, And sometimes with the whole band, we did a few things all together. Mm. But yeah, I think I, I love having my friends around me. I, and I love music, but I also love people. I've been very lucky that my friends happen to be great players, yeah. as you know, well, because I think, yeah, yeah. you know, you've had a lot of them work with you. Yeah, um, definitely. But I, yeah, I, so yeah. it, it kind of, it changed gradually, I guess, because obviously Rhino Edwards and, um, and the drummer, I'll complete my terrible at names. Don't <laughs> cut that bit out or whatever. Yeah. I can't. Jeff Rich. There Sorry, Jeff Rich and Rhino Edwards were our bass player and drummer, and they got taken by um, Status Quo. Oh. So that was the beginning of when we started having different musicians coming and going. And it, it goes like that. You know, I wanted to keep the same band forever and ever. I didn't want to change anything. But the way of the world, they'd go off and do other things. New yeah. people would arrive, and and that's what's happened. But nearly everybody, I would say, that's been in my bands have been my friend, either first or definitely at the same time. Yeah, and still are. Yeah, yeah. And did you have how much control did you have about your how you were perceived, your image, your look, your covers? Um, thinking of Ritmo with that massive big hat. Oh, that one. <laughs> Do you know what? The hat was my idea and it was Paul's hat. And it's because they had this, the other side where they did my hair took hours and hours to do and, you know, doing all that crinkling and the bits of ribbons in the hair. And and it wasn't me. I mean, I, I thought it looked good, but it wasn't me. So <laughs> afterwards I said, can we just have a couple of pictures taken where I look normal? But my hair was too 
you couldn't use my hair because it was all crinkled and sprayed. And mm. so we just put it in a hat and had that picture taken. And I, I loved that picture actually. Um, yeah. With the it's hat. Very, but it's it, very stylish and very of, of its time as well. For yeah. Sure. And that, that was, I'd say the other one wasn't so much me, although I was excited to do it with the crinkly hair and the ribbons and stuff, but I preferred the hat one, but it was quite a nice album cover to have the two different. Yeah. We had the back and front was like that. I yeah. think I've always fought for my, um, the way I wanted to do things. I haven't always won, but because Paul produced most of my stuff and well, all of my stuff. And um, I was designed a bit in my clothes, which I always struggled with that. Um and eventually, when I did start just having my photographs done with the clothes that were mine or that I wanted, everyone said to me, oh, you've got such an image, you know, I don't mm. know why you didn't do that before. And I'm like, well, I was told in the beginning I had to do different things. I don't, there's an awful picture of me somewhere with um, me on a bike. Have you seen okay. me on a bike with a crinkly hair? I haven't, but I will go and find it. <laughs> it's an awful picture and I absolutely hated it. And um, But, you know. You try these things, but I still got the same hair, just about a bit less and, since I had COVID. But and um, as someone that's that's written so much and is you know, I'd, I'd forgotten actually until I did a little bit of a kind of uh, checkup on you that <laughs> that you did a cover of God Only Knows. I forgot about. I that. did. I loved that cover. Um, I, th- I, I do you know what? I don't think I'd ever heard it before until this morning, and I thought, well, obviously it's one of my favourite songs anyway, but. Um, did you that... see the video? No, I haven't seen the video. Oh, you should see the video. It's right. me and Bailey, basically. All oh, right, and a very handsome chap. And and was uh, this your idea to do it, or did someone suggest you do a cover? My keyboard player, it's his favourite track, and he. Yeah. I, I said I was doing, I was going to do a cover, and um, that was suggested. And we did it like we, we used my voice. It was when all the sample things started. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so we did, there's actually a whole program that we did, which is really embarrassing with the making of that as well. Um, but it's up, it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's got Paul and Pax in it. And they're sort of telling me what to do, which didn't happen that way, but that's what they wanted. Um, but it was, uh, I, I loved it. I thought we did a good version of it. Um it didn't happen, but we sent it. Somebody sent it to Brian Wilson, and he said he loved it. Um, oh wow! So we were very happy with that. But it, uh, yeah, it was. It has a bit of a sour taste because we got our first video on Good Morning TV, mm. and um, Lorraine Kelly didn't like it at all. And it was so sad because there was me and Paul and Bailey, who was about three maybe sat in bed with the TV set up and we were so excited and the video came on and she just butt in and just said, why do they do that? It's awful. What are they thinking? <laughs> and I, I was sort of shrinking under the covers and it really upset me, really upset me. Oh. So we sort of stepped back from pushing it anymore because it upset us that much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that was the only proper video I had done and I love the video. Mm. Um, it's a beautiful video set in Ibiza. Okay. I should definitely check that out. And then you sort of bounce around a couple of labels, you know, you bounce into Polydor and you bounce into yeah. Columbia. Was that just all going where people wanted you or? Um, this is, this is where it all gets a bit confusing. I signed to Polydor. Yeah. Um, Polydor at the time wanted me to work well we gave they they signed me because of the demos that we'd done mm. 
Mm. Um, but they didn't want Paul to produce it, so they forced us to work with another producer, um, right. who's a, a great producer. But it wasn't what I wanted, and I was pregnant um, at the time, and um, a little bit worse for wear. And and the producer kept saying to me, "Don't worry, it'll be all fine when you hear it finished." <laughs> so I kind of let a few things go, and then we ended up with the album done. Um, and then the, whoever was head of Polydor at that time left and the new guy that came in heard the album and said, oh, it's awful, I don't want that. And I, I just happened to meet him in Ibiza, very all, you know, serendipity. Mm. Uh, he said, I really don't like the album. I don't really know what to do. I think we're going to let you go. And I said, oh, that's really bad. He said, but I've got to say, I heard some newer versions of what you'd done and we thought they were great. I said, well, they're the original demos. So we ended up getting to do that with them. Um, but then there was all sorts of other issues with my management at the time who I can't even remember it all. It's all a bit complicated, but okay. he got, he got sacked, not by me, but, uh, Polydor wouldn't work with him. Um, and that then made it impossible for me to stay on Polydor because I wasn't, and I wasn't, and they canceled a tour of mine. It was all uh, an awful Ooh. time, very upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was a really big tour. Um, and we had this uh, bass player from America and we had, oh, it was a great band and we were rehearsing in Shepparton studio. And I got this call saying, I'm really sorry, but Polydor won't pay for it and we haven't got enough money to pay for the tour. So mm. it got cancelled. So that went. And I had a couple of sort of slightly sad years. And then uh, CBS or Columbia or whatever suddenly were interested in me and they signed me, which was so exciting. Um, but it didn't work out. I mean, I think, you know, I was never prepared to um, do anything that I didn't really want to do. And I think that made – I was – known as difficult which I, you know me I'm not a difficult <laughs> no, person no. but I'm difficult in that I make the music that I make and I don't know how to do things if it's not what I feel yeah so that didn't work out and then we set up our own label and that was in I think it was what 95 or something yeah, and it's yeah and and we've done it ever since like that we make the albums that we love and yes and we do okay I mean, yeah. we, it would be much better if we were on the radio and, you know, I do get frustrated that people don't hear what I do because I'd like more people to hear it. And if they don't like it, that's fine. But yeah. it's frustrating when you do something and you put your heart and soul into it. And then you, I mean, the making of an album is the most exciting time for me mm. when all the possibilities are there. And um, I think that's why I love writing with other artists because you can have all that excitement of what this could end up being, you know, and then it goes to the record companies. Well, that was the next question I was going to ask you actually is when, you know, having written so much for yourself for so long, when, what, what was the catalyst for the, for someone asking you to work with writing? It was Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. Silvers. Yeah. So how, how did you and Lucy meet? Well, Lucy was best friends with my stepdaughter and they went to college. That was my cat, by the way. Okay. Don't <laughs> uh, they went to college together in Weybridge. And so Lucy, uh, Annie came back with Lucy and said, I've got this friend and she wants to make a, a happy birthday song with her sisters for the, her parents or her father, I think it was. 
So Lucy and her two sisters, Mia, who you know, I'm, yes. I think, and um, yeah, and the, and the other one. That sounds awful because my name's gone again. Names are <laughs> my right. terrible thing. Um, but they came over and they did this fantastic thing. And Lucy was just a you know great singer, we thought. And uh, so she started helping doing backing vocals. And then we took her out on tour and she sang backing vocals with me for a few years. Um and then Mia joined and then other things happened. And then Lucy got her own deal uh, and she was recording down in Winchester with this producer. And she said, I'm writing with all sorts of people. And I just thought it'd be lovely if you wanted to try writing something together for a day. So I went down there and I think I stayed pretty much on and off for about two or two months or something. And we wrote most of the album together. Mm. And that that then got me a, a very a big deal on Universal because and, and got got her got signed her, as well. Well, exactly. Well, um, Lucy and Grange was you know determined that she was going to be massive, and that mm. in turn made writing a bunch of songs that was a lot of fun anyway into something really exciting. Um, mm. And the, and and when I signed Universal, then they started sending me to work with other people. And I just love it. I just, you know, I love writing songs for somebody else because I find the whole being the person up front quite difficult. Yeah. Um, so my dream is to sort of write an album with someone, to be there in the studio, to help them do their vocals, to to basically bathe in their excitement and ambition and to hear songs that I love brought to life and I don't have to go and stand on stage and do them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is what I've really wanted to do. And also I like working with younger artists because they still have that enthusiasm and belief and naivety that I cling to because for me, otherwise I don't want to do it. I have to believe that if I write a great song with someone it will eventually come through. Something will happen because it's honest and it's real and it's true. And it has to be that way. It's very difficult though. And working with people of my own age, a lot of them are very cynical mm. and I can't take that because that, that obliterates my um, inspiration. Mm. Yeah. I, I love hearing other people's lives and I get to know people in a way that you would never get to know people in general life you know um and we write songs about it and we have lots of fun and we imagine all the things that are going to happen and or not (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's there's way too many to go through but i want to pinpoint a couple of these incredible songs i've said to you before one of my favorite things you've ever done and and i'd be interested if you have any memories of writing icarus wings with tom baxter oh yeah oh i love i love working with tom and we've been talking lately song in particular because it is quite odd but brilliant but the time structure (laughs) do you know what I mean I just I'd love to know how that came about well he had some of it and he thought it was not going to work and so he had bits of it and I was very lucky to work with him in fact I remember the day that we wrote that I actually came we went for a drink afterwards with um, some friends of ours and I think I said "I, I can't believe today I've managed to write a song that has the words Icarus wings and uh oh Oh, I can't remember. There's another line that's a really bizarre line. But I literally just, I helped, I think, show Tom that there's a natural flow to things. And even though he had a couple of bits of it, mm. he couldn't join it together. 
So a curious Icarus wings was what it was, wasn't it? My curious <laughs> yeah. Icarus wings in it. Um, we just sat there and, and tried other things to join it all together. And it, it, it worked, but I mean, the, the timing things probably are more to do with the music that was, he had going on. Well, I don't know. It was putting it all together. Yeah, it's putting together. it all together. But I, yeah. I just feel that it's, you know, and you're, you are, you're, you're a real lover of words and you're a real lover of lyrics and, and not agonizing over them, but I, you, I've always, anytime I've been in a room with you and, you know, we know this anyway, that it is, it's, it has to have that feeling. It has to have that. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And, and I, I write very quickly as you know, but I, then I also change things later, but mm. I kind of need to capture that moment. Um, and then sit with it and make mm. sure it is what I actually meant to say. In actual fact, um, yes, uh, I'm just thinking of the chorus of Icarus Wings. I'll come back to it. I can't think now. One of my favourite lines that I ever wrote was with you mm. and was Harriet's Christmas song. Ah. And we were all sat sort of very quietly kind of trying to come up with a line that summed it all up. Mm. And, and I hope... You don't mind me saying, but I I had this I wish I didn't know then. Yes. Well, I was. didn't know how or what. And I was running all these words. Does this 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 sounds good? This yeah. kind of makes sense, but <laughs> I don't know. Does it make sense? I remember sitting there and then I said it, and you and Harriet just both said, That's it. That's yeah. it. And that was it. And it's just a funny little line, but it it absolutely meant what we were saying, didn't it? It was like yeah. wish I didn't know. Wish I, wish I, I didn't I know now what I wish. What I, I, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know didn't then. Know then, that's because right. we were trying to get across that thing of wanting to have a childhood innocence about Father Christmas exactly. as an adult, and it and it worked. And I still listen to that line and remember sitting there, sort of thinking, "Is it? Isn't it? Does it make <laughs> sense? What is it?" But yeah, I love that line. It's, it's beautiful. And actually, what preceded that, and I, I was speaking to a few other. I was speaking, when I spoke to Grace Davis about this, and 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 she's like writing now. That kind of, I remember that day really well. And actually what had preceded it was so much of songwriting, especially <laughs> with someone like you is, you know, probably four hours, including lunch of not writing. Yeah. Talking, of talking. Catching up and chatting and not about what we're doing. And I think it was probably that little moment you're talking about probably came at about half past three in the afternoon where you're almost at a point of thinking, well, this has been a lovely day and <laughs> it's been really nice to catch up, but probably this isn't going to, but all of that talking, I just, I see it. It's like kind of food for plants or something. It's a bit like yeah. you just add it all in. And then at some point that whatever it takes to get you to that moment where you're sat there on that sofa going, this is a, what's this? I didn't yeah. have this four hours ago. No. <laughs> and, I've, and, I know. I've, and I've never had it before. No. And, and it pops out and it's incredible. I mean, I always feel like it's some kind of gift. It's almost like you chuck absolutely everything you've got in the air yeah. and somehow it, it falls down into something and then it makes sense. But that's what I was saying earlier, the fact that I get to talk to people and find out about their lives and how they're feeling and what they're doing. And it kind of floods me. And yeah. I I feel like I sort of, I become connected to that person at that moment so that when I write lyrics, or they write them. We write them from the same place. Yeah. And so the song ends up being as much my song as their song. Yeah. Or, you know, and I think that's a, a wonderful thing that I get to be able to do. 
And you're also so brilliantly succinct at it. And I mean, another Harriet song, which 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 I worked with on you and and her was uh, with with you and her was one where we were trying to find a way of addressing the fact that she had a <laughs> yes. sound, and she her her voice reminded of people uh, people of of another artist and, and yeah. you know there was a comparison to Karen Carpenter which is you know how Harriet sings it's not we yeah. keep saying it it's that if you're going to sound like anyone it's a great person to sound like yeah and there was another four-hour conversation it's and then it was your you know some part of me's been here before you can hear it in my voice yeah well it's like fronting the sort of yeah so that, because she was saying at the time that everywhere she went all the labels and that were saying yeah but you sound just like yeah. Karen Carpenter so I said well why don't we address it yeah. Why don't we actually write about it? And she told me that wonderful story that she played a gig somewhere and some guy came up to her afterwards and said, when Karen Carpenter died, so did my love of music and you've awake, you've awoken yeah. it. Yeah. And so it was a great thing to have that story. Yeah. But we had to talk a lot to actually find that you out. You yeah. Know? Um, and, and I think yeah. there's, there's a craft in that. And I think, you know, a lot of the songs that, that were, I mean, Harriet's actually just about to go back out on, on tour again after, you know, the last couple of years and still singing that, that song and still so many of the things. And certainly going back to maybe this Christmas, I mean, what's great about that. Christmas songs is they come out every year. Yeah. And, um, and the connection that people find with that song. Um, actually, especially in the last two years. Yes. You know, I mean, maybe this Christmas it'll be all right. Crikey. That's something. Well, let's that hope think. that this next Christmas they <laughs> put it on the playlist. I mean, I'm so proud of that song. And I don't know if anybody's seen the video that Harriet made for it. And it is Harriet when she was growing up. Yeah, yeah, it's it, all her own footage. I, I watch it, makes me cry just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I absolutely love that song. I think it's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous song. The, um, the other one, which is, I've said this before, that the song I get asked about the most that I happen to be, I always say <laughs> I happen to be in the room when it happened because I don't think either of us oh. were really responsible for it I felt like it came from somewhere else yeah but um when when you talk about if it's all I re- what I remember of it and I don't I'll be interested to see if you remember I remember that we were on a five-day writing camp for a band that never happened yeah the previous four days we'd been put with other people and it's been it hadn't been the best let's just say and Tom Baxter was in the other room. Yeah, that was the one day that was kind of, Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he was there. And then I think we did one thing with him that was kind of good. And then on the Friday, it was just you and me. And we'd been told the night before by the wonderful Willie Morrison that this, uh, that the, the Rudyard Kipling if poem had gone into, you know, public domain. If it's just if we needed to know about it. And then I just remember turning up in the morning with a mel- with a piano thing in my head and I just I ran which is unlike me to the studio and just put this down and then I remember you coming in going I've got it I've got something I've got something yeah you remember that day oh yeah I thought it was Tom that came in and said about oh, maybe it was Tom thing. yes no yeah. you're right yes it was Tom much as I love Willie yeah yeah <laughs> I don't think it was him and um I remember yeah well I because I had just given um I had just given the poem If, because it was my, one of my favourite songs ever, and it had a whole story behind it because my brother had it. And so it was a song that I was really close, a, a poem that I was very close to and had childhood memories of. I had just given it, actually, I'd just given it to Matt, who you know, yeah. because he was who's going your, off on tour. Who's your son-in-law who was going my off son-in-law. on tour? Yeah. Yes. He was going off on tour and it was a big tour and I knew he was very nervous and the the 
basic idea was to be able to give that song to someone to make them realise that, you know, to remember to not get bogged down by anything. It, but that wasn't, that wasn't, I had to make it more than that. So I had to make it as a love song to someone going away, but I wasn't in love with my son-in-law. And I have, mm. I did try and tell that story on stage <laughs> a few times and it all sounded so weird that like I had to stop telling it. But yeah, it was, so it was a story and I didn't want to just use the whole poem, which was what I think Tom was saying, not Tom no. Baxter, Tom yeah. the guy was saying, yeah. you can just use the whole poem and just put it to music. In fact, mm. Tom Baxter did do that. Yeah. Um, but I had this story, so it was very easy to just write it. And it was a very natural sort of thing because I'd just given the poem to someone. So I wrote the song about giving the poem to someone. Mm. And and it, it did kind of feel like it almost came from nowhere and yet everywhere because the poem was already something that was part of my life. All those things made yeah. it easy. And and I remember I sang it to you and I was crying. Oh, we were both. <laughs> <laughs> and you had tears in your yeah. eyes and we kind of, felt like it was special i still think it's a really special song uh it's so many but i lit i was on a i have a little group that i'm on and uh, they were sort of asking people to post songs and uh and i just said oh i don't know if you and i still to this day i don't know anybody that that hears and obviously it's had many lives that song now because you know it was it was really i mean you it was the kind of key track for the your best of the moon on the bearable yeah. thing which you did yourself and and actually added to the emotion and beauty by putting your two daughters on it yes yeah i mean that was the first time i heard that that was oh gosh it was i was gone again yes and it had that very peculiar timing bit at the end that i think was an accident but it, we don't do <laughs> I, it when we do it with the woman to woman we don't do that because nobody could come in time i thought that was just <laughs> i thought that was just paul trying to be Probably. really really smart which he is and he's a brilliant producer yeah. but i was just like no but i, I yeah it, yeah it, no i i still feel that somebody somebody is going to do that song and it's going to break out and everyone's going to hear it because i think it should be. I'm sad that it hasn't had a big um, breakout, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm still hoping that somebody somewhere will take it on and do a different version altogether and people will actually, it will be reached. I think so. I mean, it's still, it's such an incredible song. Let's talk a bit about performance and in specifically stage fright. And... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and how I mean I know this story but I feel like it would be really good to tell it as because the way you got over stage fright was quite extraordinary I mean you're never over it but I mean being purely purely petrified completely you mean the Union Chapel yeah yes (laughs) um yes well I have always been petrified and have tried various ways of trying to overcome it but the main thing was I always thought that and I don't know why I thought that, but I always felt like people came to see me fail. I always felt, I, I think there's that imposter syndrome. I've always kind of been a bit surprised that I'm actually any good. Uh, I never really liked my voice. Uh, I never liked being looked at. Um, I was never comfortable on stage. Uh, I always thought I was going to lose my voice or forget my words or and that would be it. Everyone would go off me and that would be it. And then I had cancer. And then 
the first when the first tour after I had cancer, we were doing Union Chapel and I got a really bad flu, which I think was because my body was still not recovered from cancer. But I tried really hard to I did vocal coaching. I did all sorts of stuff so that I could do this gig in London because I didn't want to. I didn't want to not do it. And it was sold out and it was all wonderful. And um, I walked on stage with my band and I started to sing and I sounded like a toad and there was nothing I could do. to. Ch- I couldn't bluff it. You know, I've always, I've done, cold, I've done gigs with colds before uh, and coughs and things, but it just was uh, the most ugly sound I've ever heard. Um, so I'm standing in front of this audience and I, I, I think it was about two or three songs in. I just said, "Look, I can't sing. My voice sounds awful." If you, well, you were there that night, weren't yeah, you? Yeah. You know, if you want to go, just or if it's too bad, just let me know. Just tell me, and I'll stop. And no one did. Um, and I was lucky. I had the girls with me, so they could sing in unison with me. So I don't think anybody quite knew how awful I was sounding. I then proceeded to get quite drunk and. Um, got through the gig and the band were amazing and everyone was so supportive and the audience sang everything as loud as me, well, louder than me. And I got three or four standing ovations and I thought I was awful. I was absolutely horrified by what had gone on. Um, but the the way the audience were made me realise they like me. <laughs> they like me even when I sound like a toad and they didn't seem to mind. And I get, I still to this day get emails from people saying, God, I wish I'd been there that night. Okay, but it was awful, but it was wonderful. It was the most wonderful thing. And it, it definitely changed my attitude. And I then had to accept that whatever I didn't think I had, an audience the, my audiences love it and get something from it. So whatever I think of myself, I'll just give it. And that's how I now approach things. I still get really nervous, but not nothing like I used to. I, I do drink vodka, though, on stage. Yeah, well, you know, a little, bit, a, little <laughs> bit of, a little bit of courage. But I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's about realising that, and it takes a long time to do this, but realising that those lovely people have you know, organised themselves to buy tickets, you know, come out, potentially, you know, maybe get someone to watch the kids, someone to do this, park, have dinner, and then they're going to come and sit and watch Why did they, yeah, and why would they want to see me fail? Because they want, and they want the best for you, and they want, they're there because they, they, you know, it's such a, your audience is so lovely and so adoring and so wonderful. And, um, yeah, they just want you to, you know, they want they want to hear you. And if you're yeah. down, they will help you and because you've helped them in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, it was an absolutely life-changing moment. And I don't know if you remember, I was so, I still, even when I was on stage, was so embarrassed that I couldn't sing as well as I should have that I promised a free gig, which yeah. my band all looked at me like, <laughs> oh God. And then I had to make a password up and, and everyone had been saying to me, eat pineapples because they're supposed to help with your singing. Yeah. So I made a password on that night that everyone could ring up, say pineapple, and they get a free gig, which of course was a crazy thing to do. We couldn't do it at the Union Chapel because you have to pay for the Union Chapel up yeah. front. So, and, and it's a lot of money, so we couldn't do that. But we did end up doing it in a, uh, in a lovely church uh, gig in Shepherd's Bush, mm. where the chap there very kindly let us have it for very cheap 
money and and lots of people came um but it was a it was a life-changing gig that you know uh, that that one at the union chapel didn't your fans also do a thing whereby they would they would kind of write out prompts for you on lyrics that you oh, would occasionally yeah. forget? Well, as you've probably noticed in my interview, I forget words quite often. Um, well, you've written a lot of them, Jude. <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, that's the other thing. I had to sort of forgive myself for the fact that I can't always remember words. But what does happen to me is that when I'm on stage, if I forget a line... It's almost like a computer thing that happens every night until I get it right. And so my fans used to remember the things that I'd forgotten, write them on a big plaque. And when it came to that moment in the song, they'd sort of hold them up. So that cleared the sort of memory block of that line. But when I forget words on stage, I forget the whole English language. It's not (laughs) like I can bluff it. I think everybody knows all my lyrics, but of course they don't. But I know there's always some that do. So, you know, and I look at them, there's a few that come to a lot of gigs like that, that still come. Yeah. Some of the ones that used to hold the plaques up still come. Yeah. Um, And they know when I get it wrong. Yeah. But I now have, I now have my book with all my lyrics in and I don't pretend that I'm not reading them because as you said, I've written an awful lot of words (laughs) and I do have, um, I don't have the greatest memory for words. So it was one huge thing that I took off my uh, list of things that make me really uncomfortable yeah. was having my words there and uh, and doing that. Yeah, And I was going to get one of those prompters, but when I looked at how much they would cost, it was more than my... More than I was getting per night you just <laughs> to pop, hire one. You just pop them all on an iPad, can't you? Yeah, but then that leaves a lot of room for it to go wrong. Oh, that's if I true. just have a booklet with my yeah. words written, old school, typed, love it. Old school, that's what I do. I yeah. I decorate the books sometimes and make them look a bit prettier. And I I had to insist on it with woman to woman as well. They were like, "Well, I don't want books on there." I said, "Well, I do. That's how I do it." <laughs> and and we do it. So. And you became so like you went so the other way with your confidence that well, yeah, I know you'll never say confidence, but better than you were that you go out and do this whole tour of just you. Well, that's what I did after that tour because I suddenly realised how brilliant my audience were. Hmm. And um, I decided to just face my biggest fear, which was talking on stage. Um, And we would, you know, we kind of had to do smaller gigs anyway. So we did this whole thing. um, Ben and I first thought, Ben, Mark and I first talked about doing this songs and stories because he said you've got loads of stories why don't we do it yeah so we did one in Wales and it went really well (laughs) and it was really fun doing it with Ben Mark because he's fantastic and Mm. a wonderful friend of mine and we write a lot together as well um and it was remarkable when people started talking to me because I can talk a lot as you (laughs) as you will know from this but I need someone to want to know yeah I, I don't talk about myself if someone doesn't want to know, but if, if I'm doing an interview or as it happened, like doing a big interview with my people that have come to see me and, and getting to know my audience who I sort of did from signing autographs, which I've always done after shows, but this was just like, we were all in a room and we were all just having a chat and I, I loved doing it. And I loved meeting my audience in a real way. And it was a fantastic thing to do. And I still plan to do some more of those even though I do the woman to woman and now and 
um, in between, I'm still going to do some of those gigs because I think there's something that you never know what's going to happen or what story is going to come up. And, you know, I kind of let it, everyone could ask me whatever they want. And sometimes that was slightly regretful, but most of the time it was wonderful. But also you get that. that opportunity to sort of sing some songs that, you know, your fan base will love that you don't really ever do or yeah. sing some songs that you've written for other people or just yeah. oh, your, yeah. your favourite. I mean, it's really, you can do whatever you want and you know that they're going to love it, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done, and I've sung bits a cappella because there are some songs that we've never learnt with the band. Yeah. And unfortunately, because I can't really play an instrument, somebody will ask me to sing something that I've never sung because I haven't had a band. And in that small, intimate sort of setting, mm. I have been known to launch into an a cappella version of, well, what, I think I did um, The Rise of Heart, I did once, sort of half of it, or maybe just a verse and a chorus, just things that I could do in that setup. Set I don't think I would dare do it on a big stage with lots of people. No. And obviously recording and going back to recording and writing, I mean, all the stuff was released independently. You did, it's an in-house thing. Um, I mean, originally all that was done at the, uh, there's the, the, there's sort of a whole, almost a book that could be written about the, the legend of the pink house, which was yeah. your old house, which, you know, there's there's a kind of that. And we always used to have this thing where it was like six degrees of Zook, where some, <laughs> yes. everybody knew somebody who knew somebody yeah. who had been sort of adopted, gone in, yeah. written with, played, lived you know, with. Lived with. <laughs> But I've, I remember walking, I, I, someone once asked me about that house and I just said, it, like, it, it literally oozed music from like the moment you walked through the front yeah. door. It was set up purely for music. Yeah, it and was. So many, like, so many incredible, you know, artists and, and, and songs were written there. Um, and so many great albums in, in the, yeah. the studio, you know, which is down the back, in the back garden. Which we still have, um, but I still feel very sad that we weren't able to keep the pink house. So no, and no, that but has I mean, so many but, memories of fantastic things. Yeah, but things there. move on, and I think the studios, you know, that the studios there, and I think ultimately with you, it's. But but actually saying that, I mean, some of the not everything's been done there. I mean, certainly the when things you've been doing more recently, especially what you were doing with Ben in the lockdown stuff. Yeah, that was just done in my new house and on yeah. my own with just sending back and forwards to Ben. Um, that's right. And, you know, that's quite exciting. I also have written some songs with uh, someone I met on a writing retreat called Kevin Malpass. I've got five songs with him that I think are some of the best things I've ever done. Uh, he produces differently and we haven't managed to finish them all because of the lockdown. Um mm. But yeah, I'd love you to hear them sometimes. I, th I think you'd like oh, some no, of them. I, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I always write separately with Ben as well. As uh, I, I love working with Ben Mark. Um, I love working with Tom Baxter. And we'll always dip in and out of it. And we have a lot of fun, him and I, when we work together. Um, but I haven't seen him since the lockdown, since mm. lockdown. But we did speak just very recently and we are going to get back together again. Great, fantastic. We're going back to the girls briefly, or the gals, as you call them. Um, what when you obviously 
was I, I seem to remember from lovely Lee, who's uh, was responsible yes. a little bit for Woman's Woman. Um, oh, a lot. A, well, a lot. In fact, it was it was his idea. Um, I think it was and, actually Bev's idea. Okay. But Lee, Lee made Lee, it. Lee was the yeah the catalyst to make it, it work. Bev and him made it work. And, and he always said that it, it had to be a, an album and a tour. You know, it had to be both things together. Mm. Um, how did Safe? come about as well safe was outside the whole thing i'd written I, I wrote with beth nelson chapman on a writing retreat um and it was the last day of the writing retreat and we only had the morning to go before everyone was leaving and i'd wanted to write with her and um so i asked if i could and so her and i went upstairs in one of the bedrooms where we, we were all writing in different bedrooms um and we talked a little bit trying to get to know each other double fast really and I found out that she'd had cancer too and her husband had had cancer and there was also another situation that was going on with a friend of hers um, that she told me about and we just talked back and forwards and then we just said why we want to write a song that is is something we'd like to feel after all our experiences you know it'd be really nice to have a song that makes you feel safe um so we literally wrote down all these words like safe um rested calm peaceful fearless and all that kind of stuff and then and knitted it together it was quite different and I would say that she Beth I was so in awe of her that I I would say she led the song that's interesting that's interesting you're in awe of her because you you sort of to me on my mind you occupy a very similar space but yeah, but I never think I do. This well, is, I this know that. Is, yeah, <laughs> I never think, I always think every song I ever write is a bit of a fluke and God, how did I do that? Yeah, well, you know, yeah. and is it any good? Um, so I was sort of letting, and also Beth was playing guitar. So I was at the mercy of mm. what she was playing. Um, and I would say that she did more of Safe than I did, but I feel as much in it as she is. Mm. Um, and I had I sang it a couple of times on stage um, on my own, well, with backing vocals when I was doing my stuff with Chaz. Mm. You you haven't have you met Chaz? Yes, my, yes, yes. You know, who's a wonderful guitarist again, um, and who I do a lot of stuff with, and I do write with him too. But uh, when I then joined Woman to Woman, I just thought that's the perfect song for three part all the way through, and there aren't that many songs that can take no. that without feeling. A yeah. bit unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's it. And, and also it kind of went with the, the way that I thought of woman to woman, which is like supporting other women and, and men, anyone that needs it really. Mm. It was a song for people to hear, to feel inside it and make them feel better. Yeah. I think. Um, and I was, I was so excited by it and I played it to um, Beverly and she didn't like it at all. And she she says that in interviews, so it's okay. I'm not kind of <laughs> saying anything. But Julia loved it. Um, so we ha we have a sort of thing where two against one, you know, we get to try it. And mm. um, so we did do it. And eventually, Beverly loves it. I think now, mm. or at least she she likes it. I don't, <laughs> don't know if she hate loves it, it anymore. But, yeah, and she doesn't hate it anymore. Um, it, it just worked for woman to woman. I think it was the best three-part thing that we've had yeah I think. Um, yeah and I'm off to another writing retreat next week with rumor actually she's going to be not with her but 
we are going to yeah. be in the same place. So I think we're going to look at trying to do something possibly for That'd the next a, tour. That's fantastic. And of course, yeah. that song, If, comes up again for Woman yeah. to Woman. Yes. Um, was that again something you introduced to the, to the other two? Yes. Well, the thing is also is that, as I said to you, I just think, I think that song's bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm. I think, as you say, it was a bit of a gift that you and I got that I, I don't feel like it's been heard enough yet. So mm. I was happy to offer it up. Um, yeah. And I think Lee might have suggested it. I'm not sure because he knew that song, obviously. Mm. But um, I still feel like there's more life in that song to come. Um mm. But I was very happy to do it with the ladies. And I think, you know, I think we did a, it a good job really of it. Well, yeah. yeah. It turned out really yeah. well. So that's, so you've been, I mean, obviously the lockdown releases you were doing, which must have been so much fun because you're, the one thing I know about you is that you you love that kind of, the moment a song is born. Yes, And then you've often said that sometimes it gets a bit fuffled up after, you know, once yes. it's all been done. So you just wrote a song, put it out. Yes, it was a wonderful thing to be able to do. Again, frustrating because most people haven't heard it. You but know, your fan base must have heard it. I think some of them did, but I think maybe some of them aren't online as but much. But you did that. You did a bit of that before, didn't you? Where you were just putting out just yes. compilations of of yes. lost, like songs. And I'm using some of those as well on my new album. Good. Um, because some of them, there's a song called "London at Midnight." I don't mm. know if you heard that, mm. which. I wrote for Bette Midler. <laughs> I mean, it had nothing to do with Bette Midler, but it was her, her MD at the time sent me a track and I was supposed to be writing a song for her. But I then went to see Ray Morris one night in London mm. on my own because she'd invited me and we were going to work together. Um, and after the gig, I walked home um, and I used to live, sorry, I walked back to my car, which yeah. I parked in the next street to where I used to live with my dad. Mm. So I was walking through London on my own in the freezing cold and um, walked into Clarges Street, which is where I lived with my dad for a few years. And it was just filled with emotion about that and memories and stuff. And the fact that the flat that we moved into, me and my dad, when I went into my bedroom, it had a bullet hole in the window and it was like a constant source of who who got shot there? Why did they have guns? I mean, it was quite an exciting time. So I wrote the song all about that night and my memories, which had absolutely nothing to do with Bette Midler at all. So there was no point and she was never going to do it. Mm. I did say I could write a whole different lyric on it if she so desires, but um, I never heard any more back on that. But it's a it's another song that... I, we just put the demo on the record. Um, we now do it. I don't know if you know, Bev and I did three shows just before Christmas where we are, we do, it's called Strings Attached. And it mm. was originally Beverly's gig, but because the song, because of lockdown, it got put back a year. And Bev said to me, look, we've got two nights at Milton Keynes. Should we just share both rather than have one each? Mm. So we decided to do that with her idea of it's her on piano. I've got Chaz on guitar and we have a string quartet. Mm. And it's a magical gig, Steve. I mean, mm. it's it just, we just sort of did it. And so we did London at Midnight and Bev wrote the string section, which is beautiful. And because of that, we got asked by Litchfield Cathedral to do that gig, but with a whole string section and they would supply the string section. Oh my God. So we did that. And it was 
so brilliant. I even like, and Bev's string uh, arranging is beautiful. And she yeah. did the strings in a similar way to Stay With Me Till Dawn in that they've got the sway and the flow mm. rather than a whole kind of big orchestra. Um, and when I was singing it in Litchfield Cathedral, which is, have you been there? It's a beautiful, no, beautiful cathedral. Yeah. And they've got it all lit in a way that it, it was just wonderful. And it was all full and lovely. And I started doing London at midnight and the strings came in and it was almost like onions in my eyes. You know, I just yeah. uh, like burst into tears. Of course, the audience saw that I was in tears. So they're all in tears. I mean, it's just like so emotional having the strings played on stage live right behind you doing mm. that kind of um, stuff. It was just a wonderful gig. And, and we do hope to be doing some more in 2023 of that gig. Um, so I brought, uh, so we're going to do a proper version of uh, London at Midnight with strings as well. That sounds gorgeous. Yeah. I think, and it's really good that you know that, that Beverly is, you know, it has that opportunity as well to show the musicianship that you know she's, she's amazing. She's she's so incredible. I mean, I I remember even you know the sort of the very beginning of her career. I was at that point. I was sort of buying every CD single, you know, CD one, CD two. So yeah. I saw her one of the very first shows I think she ever did, which was at one of the theatres in London. Yeah. And um, yeah, her musicality is 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 extraordinary. Really is. And, and she and, doesn't realise it. She's a bit like. Yeah, but you she, don't re- like none of you realise it. No, I was going to say. I know we're like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean Beverly is a is a lovely singer and I love some of her songs or you know most of her songs but it absolutely I had no idea how musical she actually was with instruments you know mm. and str- uh, string arrangements I mean they're not easy things to do no. um no and and I don't like a lot of strings either so when she asked me if she could have a go at it I was like oh god I hope <laughs> I'm gonna like it you know because I didn't know that she could really do that so but oh, also it's, it's for, for her as well, there's a, you know, she, it's, it's it's a quite a tough thing when you're following someone like Paul Buckmaster. It's yeah. like, I imagine that she would really enjoy that challenge. Yes, I think she is someone like you that likes the challenge too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. So you're, so you're back out this, this year, you're doing that. Um, obviously, you're probably quite, I know you're iffy about live stuff. I mean, you love doing it, but it's frightening, but you must be, I mean, obviously, you were able to do some last year, which is great. But yes. you must be happy. You must be looking forward to that. And you're so the, oh, the album you're making now—it's a new solo album, right? I've got a new solo album that is over halfway done. It's Amazing, sort of hit, yeah. It's sort of, and I'm doing quite a few of the songs that I have written with other artists. That, oh, great! Like, yeah, because I I love some of the stuff I've written for other people, and they still feel as much my songs as theirs. Yeah, and I was, you know, you you end up waiting forever, and for various reasons, songs don't get used. Um, mm. And so I just rang up. Well, uh, Laura Welsh, who I I think yeah. you know, oh, I've worked God, with yeah. her for a long time, and and she hasn't. She's used a couple of mine, um, but we wrote some just before lockdown that I thought were brilliant. Um, and I rang her up and just said to her, look, are you going to do them? And she said, well, I, I will probably do them at some point. And I said, well, do you mind if I do them too? Because we've got a different audience. I mm. love what we've done. And she said, do anything you like and use all of my backing vocals that we'd already done. So, you know, they'll, they're good. I think I've got three tracks on there with, um, with Laura and uh, a couple more of me and Ben. What else have I got? Uh, one that I wrote in Nashville 
where, where I arrived in Nashville at four in the morning, got dumped in a studio with a girl that I wrote this song with that I don't even, I didn't even know her name. When I left the studio and we'd written this song, I didn't even know who she was. Um, and I later in, later in the day got sent the track that we did. Um, and she then had gone, moved in a bit of a different direction musically, but she said she loved the song. So I said, well, do you mind if I do it then? Because it's a, it's a sad song, but it's um, it was written as I was losing the Pink House, funny enough. And mm. she wanted to write a song. I said to her, what do you feel? What do you, she was only 18. So what do you feel you want to write this song about? And she said, finding a place where I feel safe and at home. So, of course, I'm just losing the pink house. So it was instant kind of connection. I was also completely in a daze after flying to Nashville and getting off the plane and it was didn't know what time of day it was. And we wrote this song, which Paul has always loved. So we're putting that on the album. Um, and she again said she would love to use it one day, but at the moment she's sort of doing more dance music, this girl. But mm. she's very good. You'd like her, I think. Um but I don't think she's done the music that's going to take her to yeah. a larger audience yet. But she's, her name's Sarah Hartman, if you ever want okay. to check her out. Thank you uh, very much. But, um, yeah, so it's an album. I'm really pleased with it. It's a slightly more rocky album, I think, um, because that was the way we were doing them with those artists, really. Yeah. So yeah. I thought it'd be nice to keep it up a bit. So you're... You're positive about this year. You're looking forward to it. I'm positive about this year. I, you know, I feel much better about this year than last year. I know you had a, it was Everyone was going, oh, thank God we're past, you know, 2020. And I was just thinking, why are they wishing it away? (laughs) Actually, 2020 wasn't bad all over. But yeah, 2021 has been difficult. Not not least because, you know, in the music industry, we couldn't earn any money. We didn't get any furlough. Um, you know, for the first time in my life after Woman to Woman, I actually had enough to last a while, mm. but not two years. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it last, this last year was, was very frightening and very difficult, but now it's fine. It's fine. I feel much better about the future again. And, and I'm just about to sign a new publishing deal. So even though I haven't been writing much at all this year, I've got to kind of find my uh, mojo for writing again. I'm sure I will. But also I think for you as well, you're, you're similar. Well, I'm a bit like this as well, but I mean, just the idea of being able to be back in rooms with people because, yeah. you know, the, the the remote writing is, I mean, if someone's sending you a track and you can do stuff over the top of it, it's fine. But actually I don't believe that any of the situations we talked about, specifically the Harriet situation or the, if no. that would never have been done if you weren't actually no. in a room no. with someone. No. And I think, you know, the fact that I did the Ben thing, it's Ben is like my little brother. Do you know, yeah. Ben's, Ben's lived with me for on and off for four years. Um, I've been through life with him. I've been, you know, yeah. and he knows exactly what to send me. Yeah. So it is a bit like being in a room with Ben because we know each other so well yeah. that it's like him being in another room and just going, what about this dude? You know, And, and <laughs> yeah. I'll then go, oh my God, that just sounds like what was just going through my mind. And those lockdown songs, I love them. Yeah. And they were, they were really of the moment. I mean, the, the was first that song one, called Hydra. Was it a song Hydra? Hydra? Yeah. yeah that was I the second that one. one. Oh, thank yeah. you. Well, the first one was Birds and Time, and I'd been sitting in the garden, and Lula turned up, 
um, in this dress. And she just looked like she reminded me of me when I was young. Yeah. And, and it, the weather was amazing. It was the beginning of the lockdown. We didn't know how long it was going to last for. And I felt a bit sort of soaked in joy and sunlight and, you know, that there's beauty in that moment. There was, so that was the first one. And then the next, probably a week and a half later, I was watching TV because we all watched a lot of TV in lockdown. And there was this documentary about Leonard Cohen being on Hydra. And I just literally just wished I'd been there. And I wrote that one without any backing. I sent Ben the top line of Hydra. Brilliant. It's the first time I've sort of done that apart from for you, really. Yeah. Um, I literally just sang it and said, can you put some chords to it? And Ben put the whole backing on and it changed a lot, but it still had the fundamental top line on it. Yeah. Um, and then, then I got very cross. If you look back in the times it was, it was as, as uh, lockdown was progressing and, then I wrote Idiot Kings, which is my political angry one. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Vin, who you know, got on his bike with his GoPro and drove through Bermondsey. And that's the video that we made of all that kind of stuff. And we put all bits of news in because I was feeling very cross at, at the time. I still am. But I kind of was hoping that that was just going to sort itself out. But, you yeah. know, it didn't. Um And then what was, the last one, actually, is a song called Jude the Unsinkable. But uh, Paul didn't want me to put it out in the lockdown things because he loved it so much and said, can we put it on the album? So that one didn't come out. And then I and I had this other one called Stealing. Um, and it took me ages before I even played it to Ben. I, I wrote it, but I wasn't sure about it. But that was the fourth one. And, in, and I think it came out lovely too. I'm really proud of those um, songs. I think we're going to do another version of Idiot Kings because... Paul wants to make it a bigger track, a yeah. bigger, you know. That, that's uh, quite a, after everything that we've just spoken about, Jude the Unsinkable feels like quite a good title. <laughs> well, that was what I was thinking of calling this album, but I'm I'm not sure yet, but yeah. yeah. It feels like that. And you love things to do with like ships and sea and I stuff, do. don't you? And there's moon always and stars. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but in a nice way, there's always there's always some you know somewhere along there. There's always a, a mention of you know you've you've you you do like writing about sea. But I, I do, yes, I know. I I, I actually what I was writing with somebody on Universal, and their manager was very happy with the songs I was writing for this woman. But he came and he said so. In uh, I can't do the accent, but I think he was from Germany or somewhere. Right. He said, I want a little bit less of the moon and the stars on the next <laughs> song, please. But the thing is that when it comes right down to it, the earth and the moon and the oceans and the skies are the things that we revert to, aren't they? Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, if I'm feeling a bit low, I can go and sit by an ocean and it it heals me. And, and similarly, in my little back garden, I'll sit outside at night and look at the stars. And those are things that are my my healing things my healers i don't know so i guess they do end up in my songs um, and, idiot and, kings didn't have any stars no 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 that was no stars <laughs> yeah. but do you think they i mean just to finish off i mean do you think you said before about sometimes they're kind of gifted to you i mean yeah do do you obviously you probably don't give it too much thought i suppose but i mean is there a have you thought at all about where this all comes from like like literally one minute you haven't got a song and then five minutes later you have because there's a suggestion like some people would say that they're kind of all there you've just got to find a way of accessing them 
And then, you know, sometimes it's about what you're doing on the day or anything like that. But I mean, how how does it get through? How do you become the conduit for these songs? Well, I allow myself to be, um, really. I think, as I said, whenever I go to write a song, I'm never sure I can do it. I'm never sure that I've ever written a song properly before. But I do the same thing as when I walk on stage. It's almost like I take my coat off, which is my defences, my protection, my everything, and allow whatever is there to pass through me. And and I do need... Um, other people to talk to, to find those things. And I think you're right. I think they are all there. And I feel like I've been on this planet a lot of years and I have been through a lot of things. Um, And by talking to other people who've gone through things, because most people have, um, you find places where suddenly there's like, ah, right, we've got a connection. Let's go on that road together. And, and, um, it's true. Some, I'm always terrified that I'm going to turn up somewhere and absolutely have nothing. But it's not happened yet. A few times when you and I have done so, after the talking, like you said, there's been a few times. I always get to a moment when I'm writing a song. I have the beginning moment where it's like, this is going to happen and it's all wonderful. And then it gets to the sort of middle and it's suddenly, I don't like what I've done as much. I'm not sure if it's going to work. And I get that horrible feeling that we can't finish it. And then suddenly a line will come and it just runs us to the end and that's it. But I don't know where it comes from. I always used to sort of make that sort of comparison to uh, those sushi bars where they have the the thing mm. that takes the food round and you, you just pick one as it goes past. I sort of feel like songs to me are a little bit like that, where I just pick one as it's, as it's yeah. running through my heart or feelings or if it, you know, brings something up. Um, and yeah, and I, as I said, I always feel like somehow every, every time we finish a song, it's a bit of a fluke. Well, I think, I mean, that sort of imposter syndrome is something that runs through, I think, all of us. Um, but I think the other thing and the, the last thing to mention, which is ridiculous, it's taken this long to mention it. But <sighs> the last thing is, is you have a voice that has only unbelievably like considering how good it was originally improved over time and oh, thank you with a ability to convey warmth emotion and believability to a point that anybody listening to it was is immediately comforted and that's that is extraordinary. a wonderful thing for you to say because when I first started I had and maybe this maybe these things made me more able to be emotional but someone said to me you're never going to be famous because you haven't got a voice like Stevie Nicks that's kind of you know it's her when she's singing and your voice is just you know it's a nice voice and I'm thinking I was really upset by that (laughs) and then somebody else who um well a few people said in the beginning that my voice was a bit icy and not very emotional um and that really upset me and I think I went through a stage where I just thought well I know I mean it and I'm just going to mean it more and Mm. (laughs) like, you know, make sure that every word I sing, I mean. Mm. And so if that, and I actually do prefer my voice now. Um, Well, maybe a couple of years ago, I had a bit, it's gone a bit funny since lockdown, but I am actually for the first time in my life having proper vocal coaching because I lost some of the high notes. I couldn't reach Mm. them, but I do like the sound of my voice better now than I did before. 
And if I do sound emotional and if I do make people feel better, there's nothing much better than that for me. No. Well, I think, you know, I do believe that to be true. And, uh, and I cannot wait to hear the new album. Oh, and I hope you like it. I know it'd be really, really good. I can't wait to come and see you all do your do your shows, and um, and I'm going to come around for a cup of tea. Uh, Any time. <laughs> and you know, the other day I did an interview, and someone asked me a similar question where they sort of said, "What what would you when you pass when you go? What would you want your lasting sort of memory of what you do to be?" And that was a quite a shocking question because I'm like, "Well, I don't know." But what I said and what I actually was quite comforted in saying afterwards, but it came from nowhere, is that I want to be a shoulder for people when they're feeling rubbish. I want them to be able to listen to my music and and sort of like I'd be a shoulder for them. And I think that that if that makes sense, I'm, I want to write about it, actually, because I think it's a nice way of seeing it. Um, and it's what I want more than anything is to do that for people, because music did that for me mm. when I started. Definitely, I don't think I would have survived without music, you know, in the very difficult times in my life. You know, people, other people's music. That's, well. a lo- that's a lovely sentiment. And I know for a fact that you you are, you know, you do that already. So, I mean, Well, wonderful. thank you, Steve. And thank you so much for doing this. I'm so pleased <laughs> to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I'll come around for a cup of tea soon and we'll have another catch up. Anytime. But, yeah, give me a call. But for now, thanks very much for doing that. And I'll see you soon. Thank you.